Before I begin today's episode, I want to let y'all know that I split the early Middle Ages, roughly AD 300 to 800, into two episodes. I didn't want to, but I had to. I just don't want to have too long of episodes, and I'm trying to get actual Mormon history as soon as I can. I apologize for the delay, and will continue to research and write as fast as I can. I also have a suggestion for y'all. The History of the Papacy podcast teamed up with the History of the Early Church podcast to produce an hour-long episode on Origin. I listened to it and really enjoyed it. If you want a more in-depth understanding of Origin and the early Christian church, look up The History of the Papacy, episode 72, Origin Revisited with Terry Young. There's also a good episode on the quest for the historical Jesus on Gary Stevens' History in the Bible podcast. Check it out. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, welcome to the Mormon History Podcast. Episode 15, The Early Middle Ages, Changes in Church and State. Around AD 272, in what is today known as Serbia, a baby boy was born to an officer in the Roman army and a woman named Helena. The officer was Flavius Constantius, and the baby boy was Flavius Valerius Constantinus, or as we know him today, Constantine. His father, Constantius, served as a member of the Emperor Aurelian's imperial bodyguard and advanced through the ranks to serve as governor of Dalmatia under Emperor Diocletian. Helena was a Greek woman of low social standing. She may have been Constantius' concubine, or they may have been married. Constantine and his parents lived during a time of great change as Diocletian appointed Maximian as co-emperor and divided the empire in two. Constantius was immediately thrust into this new system as Maximian's Praetorian prefect in Gaul. He left Helena behind to marry Maximian's stepdaughter when Constantine was 17 or 16. In 293, Diocletian divided the empire once more, appointing two Caesars, or junior emperors to serve under the Augusti, or senior emperors. This was that tetrarchy described in the last episode. Constantius was chosen to serve as the first Caesar, Galerius being selected to, to serve in this as the second. As soon as this happened, Constantine became the heir apparent of his father's position. He was taken to Diocletian's court where he would be groomed for the purple. In late 302, Diocletian and Galerius inquired of the Oracle of Apollo about Christians. Constantine was there when the messenger returned with an answer. The Christians were dangerous and had to be put down. Diocletian hearkened to the words of the Oracle and of his court, and oversaw the great persecution, the most severe persecution of Christians in, the Roman, in Roman history. Constantine witnessed Diocletian in February 303, ordering the destruction of the church in Nicomedia, burning its scriptures, and confiscating its treasures. Other Christian churches suffered a similar fate. Constantine reportedly opposed his emperor's actions, 
but tried to lay low as to not fall out of favor with, with him. In 305, Diocletian grew very ill and announced that he was retiring. Maximian did the same. When Diocletian addressed his people, everyone thought Constantine and Maxentius, Maximian's son, would be the new emperors. But it was not so. Galerius influenced the agent Augustus to appoint his own nephew and friend as the new deputy emperors. Galerius then supposedly tried time and again to kill Constantine, sending him to the front lines and through dangerous territory. Constantius came to his son's aid and summoned him to Britain. They fought side by side until 306, when Constantius grew sick and died. Before he died, he declared his support for Constantine's appointment to the rank of full Augustus. Constantius's troops in Britain and Gaul also supported Constantine. He sent Galerius a letter detailing his father's death and his own acclamation. When he requested a recognition as Augustus, Galerius was furious. He wanted to outright oppose the upstart emperor, but his advisors convinced him to compromise. Thus, Constantine became an, a Caesar. Constantine was a, had a successful military career as Caesar in Britain and Gaul. According to Lactantius, an early Christian writer, Constantine was tolerant towards Christians in his territory. Just months into Constantine's reign, Maxentius, son of the retired Maximian, grew envious and revolted. Maximian came out of retirement and approached Constantine. They struck a deal. Constantine would marry Maximian's daughter and become Augustus if he would support Maxentius. The marriage took place in 307. Just a year later, however, in 308, the infuriated Galerius met with Maximian and Diocletian. They decided that Maximian was to return to retirement and Constantine was to be demoted back to Caesar. Licinius, one of Galerius's friends, was appointed Augustus in the west in Constantine's place. Constantine refused to back down, and by 310, Galerius was referring to him as an, as an Augustus. Next, Maximian rebelled against Constantine, trying to usurp his position. It did not end well for Maximian, who lacked support and was strongly encouraged to kill himself. He did so in, 310, in July 310. Galerius, too, died in that year, leaving Constantine, Maxentius, Licinius, and an ex-Caesar named Maximinius to fight over the fate of the empire. Maximinus came against Licinius, but they signed a peace treaty. Constantine toured Britain and Gaul, and Maxentius prepared for war, fortifying northern Italy, even seeking Christian support by allowing them to elect a new bishop of Rome, Eusebius. Constantine and Licinius teamed up while Maximinus recognized Maxentius' right to rule. Constantine's soothsayers, advisors, and generals all warned him not to strike first, he ignored them, and in 312, he crossed the Alps with 40,000 men and captured the city of Segesium, or Susa, Italy. He continued to take city after city, some of which welcomed him with open arms. Others had to be forcibly taken. He was headed for Rome. Maxentius panicked. He cut the, he cut the bridges crossing the Tiber and focused all his defenses on the Eternal City. On 28th of October, 312, Constantine and Maxentius marched into battle on the Melvian Bridge, but something was different about Constantine's troops on that day. They had a new symbol emblazoned on their shields. The Greek letters Chai, X, or Rho, P. The P rose out of the intersection of the X, and the Chai Rho represents the first two letters of the title Christus, or Christ. According to Lactantius, 
Constantine had a dream the night before in which he was told to put the symbol on his men's shields. According to Eusebius, Constantine had a vision while he was marching at midday in which he saw a cross in the sky with a message, In hoc signo vinces, with the sign, you shall win. A fierce battle broke out. Maxentius made his last stand in front of the bridge, probably a temporary wooden or pontoon bridge, as the stone bridge had likely been destroyed in preparation of Constantine's arrival. At one point, he was knocked into the Tiber River by his own fleeing soldiers. Maxentius drowned. Constantine marched into Rome. In 313, Constantine met with his ally Licinius in the city of Milan. They agreed on the now-revered Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan is found in Lactantius's De Mortibus Persectorum, on the deaths of the persecutors, and in Eusebius's The History of the Church. The two copies have some divergences, and it is debated by some if the Edict of Milan was formalized at all. Property was restored to the Christians. This was in direct opposition to the late Maxentius ally, Maximinius, who was openly persecuting the Christians as a self-stylized Augustus. The Edict of Milan effectively proclaimed religious liberty in the Roman Empire. However, it was most likely a politically motivated move, rather than an act of religious piety. The conference between Constantine and Licinius was cut short by news that Maximin Maximinus had crossed the Bosporus. Licinius met, left to meet him and eventually defeated him. However, things were not yet peaceful. The alliance between Constantine and Licinius broke down after assassination attempts on the former by a friend of the latter. In 320, Licinius reneged the Edict of Milan and began to persecute Christians. A great civil war broke out between the two former allies in 324. Constantine, with his Frankish army, confronted, confronted Licinius and his Goth mercenaries. It became a holy war, as Licinius represented the old pagan religion, and Constantine was pegged as fighting for his new Christian faith. Licinius surrendered to Constantine in the fall of 324 at Nicomedia. The victorious Constantine would later have his rival hanged. Constantine I was now sole Roman Emperor. That same year, in 324, Constantinople was founded. It, was, it would later be dedicated in 330 when it received its name that would endure for more than a thousand years. Now it is up for debate as to when Constantine became Christian. Some think that he adopted it from his mother Helena in his youth, and others theorize that he adopted it gradually over the course of his life. I was taught in school that it was more of a deathbed conversion. In 321, he issued an, a decree announcing that Sunday would be the day of rest for all citizens. In 323, he banned Christians from participating in pagan sacrifices. Christian imagery began to appear on imperial coinage during this time. Constantine saw the dangers of schisms within the Christian church, so he began to legislate against groups he saw seen as heretical, such as the Arians and Donatists. In 325, he summoned the, great, the First Council of Nicaea. This was the first council recognized today as ec ecumenical in the Catholic Church. At most, 318 attended this council, presided by Hosius of Corduba and Constantine himself. It covered the topics of Arianism, the nature of Christ, the celebration of, of Passover or Easter, ordination of eunuchs, prohibition of kneeling on Sundays, and from Easter to Pentecost, validity of baptism by heretics, lapsed Christians, and, and sundry other matters. Arguably, the most important result of the First Council of Nicaea was the Nicene Creed, which originally read, quote, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, 
maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, of whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and on the third day he rose again, ascending into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in, and in the Holy Ghost. End quote. Later, the following was added against the Her- Arian heretics. Quote, but those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance, or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. End quote. F. J. A. Hort and Adolf Harnack argued that the Nicene Creed was the local creed of Caesarea, recited in the Council by Eusebius of Caesarea. Their case relied largely on a very specific interpretation of Eusebius' own account of the Council's proceedings. A more recent scholarship has, been, has not been convinced by their arguments. In 381, the Second Ecumenical Council was held in Constantinople, in which the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed was, ado- was adopted. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, it reads, quote, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial to the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was made incarnate of the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried, and the third day rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, sits at, who, sits at whose kingdom, sits, sits at the right hand of the Father, and shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, of whose kingdom there is no shall be no end, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who together the Father and the Son is to be adored and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. End quote. Since the 19th century, scholars have questioned the traditional explanation of the origin of this creed, which has been passed down by the name of the council whose official acts have been lost over time. A local council of Constantinople in 382 and the Third Ecumenical Council, Ephesus, in 431, made no mention of it, with the latter affirming that the 325 Creed of Nicaea as a valid statement of the faith and using it to denounce Nestorianism. Though some scholarship claims that hints of later creeds' existence are discernible in some writings, no extent document gives its text or makes explicit mention of of it earlier than the Fourth Ecumenical Council at Chalcedon in 451. Many of the bishops of the 451 Council themselves had never heard of it, and initially greeted it skeptically, but it was then produced from the Episcopal Archives of Constantinople, and the Council accepted it, quote, not as supplying any omission, but as an authentic interpretation of the faith of Nicaea, end quote. Some evangelical and other Christians viewed the Nicene Creed as a helpful document to, and to a certain extent authoritative, but not infallible like the scriptures. Non-Trinitarian groups, such as the Church of New Jerusalem, 
Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, reject some of the statements in the Nicene Creed. In October 1998, then-President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Gordon B. Hinckley, spoke in the Conference of the Church's Stance on the Nicene Creed. Quote, We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. This first article of faith epitomizes our doctrine. We do not accept the Anastasian Creed. We do not accept the Nicene Creed, nor any other creed based on tradition and the conclusions of men. We do accept, as the basis of our doctrine, the statement of the prophet Joseph Smith when he prayed for wisdom in the woods. Quote, the light rested upon me, and I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defile description, standing above me in the air. One of them spoke unto me, called me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. End quote. Two beings of substance were before him. He saw them. They were in form like men, only much more glorious in their appearance. He spoke to them. They spoke to him. They were more, not amorphous spirits. Each had, has, was a distinct personality. They were beings of flesh and bone whose nature was reaffirmed in later revelations which came to the prophet. Our entire case as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rests on the validity of the glorious first vision. It was the parting of the curtain to open this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. Nothing on which we base our doctrine, nothing which we teach, nothing which we live is of greater importance than this initial declaration. I submit that if Joseph Smith talked with God the Father and his beloved Son, then all else of which he spoke is true. This is the hinge on which turns the gate that leads to the path of salvation and eternal life. Are we Christians? Of course we are Christians. We believe in Christ. We worship Christ. We take upon ourselves in solemn covenant his holy name. The church to which we live, to which we belong, carries his name. He is our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, through whom came the great atonement through salvation and with salvation and eternal life. End quote. We will cover the first vision in depth in the near future. More recently, in 2007, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles spoke in conference. Quote, in the year A.D. 325, the Roman Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea to address, among other things, the growing issue of God's alleged trinity in unity. What emerged from the heated contentions of churchmen, philosophers, and ecclesiastical dignitaries came to be known, after another 125 years and three more major councils, as the Nicene Creed. After, with later reformulations, such as the Athan Athanasian Creed. These various evolutions and iterations of creeds and others to come over the centuries declared that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost to be abstract, absolute, transcendent, immanent, consubstantial, co-eternal, and unknowable, without body, parts, or passions, and dwelling outside space and time. In such creeds, all three members are separate persons but are a single being, the often noted mystery of the Trinity. They are three distinct persons, yet not three gods, but one. All three persons are incomprehensible, yet it is one God who is incomprehensible. We agree with our critics on at least one point, at least that point, that such formulation for divinity is truly incomprehensible. With such confusing def definition of God, with such a confusing definition of God being imposed upon the church, Little wonder that the 4th century monk cried out, quote, Woe is me, they have taken my God away from me, and I know not who to, who, whom to adore or to address. End quote. 
How are we to trust, love, worship, to say nothing of strive to be like one who is incomprehensible and unknowable? What of Jesus' prayer what of Jesus' prayer to his Father in heaven, that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent? It is not our purpose to demean any person's beliefs or, or nor the doctrine of any religion. We extend to all the same respect for their doctrine that we are asking for ours. That, too, is an article of our faith. But if one says that we are not Christians because we do not hold a 4th or 5th century view of the Godhead, then what of those first Christian saints, many of whom were eyewitnesses to the living Christ, who did not hold such a view either? We declare it is self-evident from the scriptures that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are separate persons, three divine beings, noting such unequivocal illustrations as the Savior's great intercessory prayer just mentioned, his baptism at the hands of John, the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the martyrdom of Stephen, just to name four. End quote. Constantine worked to enforce the canons and decisions made at the First Council of Nicaea. He prohibited the celebration of the Lord's Supper on the day before the Jewish Passover, meaning Christianity had definitely broken away from the Jewish tradition. In addition, Christians began to use the solar Julian calendar instead of the lunar solar Hebrew calendar. Constantine also made laws against the Jews, forbidding them from circumcising their slaves, owning Christian slaves, seeking converts, or attacking Jewish Christian converts. In order to not alienate the Senate with all these pro-Christian reforms, Constantine also reformed the way one would become a senator, favoring the old elite over the young upstarts. He also worked to combat the extreme inflation that occurred during the crisis of the 3rd century, introducing a new form of currency, the Solidus coin. He confiscated treasures and statues from pagan temples and melted them down into coins. When Constantine became emperor, he brought his mother, Helena, into the spotlight. She received the title of Augusta Imperatrix in 325. Constantine gave his mother unlimited access to the national treasury to locate the relics of Judeo-Christian tradition. She immediately headed for the Holy Land. Eusebius recorded the details of her pilgrimage to Palestine. While in the Holy Land, she had the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and the Church of Elona in the Holy Land in, on the Mount of Olives constructed. She also made a search for the true cross. When, the three, when three crosses were presented to her, she brought forth a dying woman to test the crosses. The woman touched the first two crosses and nothing happened. When she touched the third cross, she was healed. Helena declared that this was the true cross on which Christ was crucified and had her son order the building of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on the site of the discovery. Wherever Helena went, she found relics and ordered churches to be built. Among these relics were the nails of the crucifixion and the holy tunic, supposedly worn by Jesus. She was also responsible for the large population of cats on Cyprus, as she imported hundreds from Egypt or Palestine in order to raid a monastery of snakes. She eventually died in 330 and was buried in a grand mausoleum in Rome. This empress of the Roman Empire was made a saint at some point in the following centuries and is revered by the Orthodox, Anglican, and Catholic churches, and is even commemorated by the Lutheran Church. Constantine's reign was not as holy as he makes it out to be. In 326, he, and his, he had his eldest son Crispus and his wife Fausta put to death, and their memories be erased from the statuary and history. Even Eusebius removed them from his writings. Some semi-apocryphal accounts justify Constantine's ruthlessness towards his family by stating that Fausta and Crispus had an incestuous relationship. Constantine also invaded Dacia, 
and incorporated into the empire incorporated it into the empire once more. He intended to lead a Christian crusade against the Persians, but in 336, Persian diplomats came to Constantinople to make peace. Despite their failure to secure a treaty, Constantine never did make war with Persia. In 337, he grew very ill. In a church his mother built in Helenopolis, he prayed and came to grips with his impending death. He became a catechumen, or a student of the catechism, preparing for baptism. He tried to return to Constantinople, but could go no further than Nicomedia. He gathered the local bishops and asked to be baptized immediately. Should he live, he said, he would live a more Christian life. Bishop Eusebius of Nicomedia performed Constantine's baptism. He died on May 22, 337, in Nicomedia. His body was taken to Constantinople and buried in the Church of the Holy Apostles. He had three sons, which would, who would succeed him. Constantine II, Constantius II, and Constans. Constantine is credited with reuniting, reuniting the empire under one sole ruler, and won major victories over the Franks, Alamanni, Goths, Sarmatians, and Dacians. He was emperor for 31 years, the longest reign of any Roman empire, emperor besides Augustus himself. Future emperors would stylize themselves after him, even copying his clean-shaven look until the reign of Phocus in 602. Both the Byzantine and Holy Roman Empires claim Constantine as a founding or venerable figure, and the Britons looked to him as a king of their own people. Even Charlemagne tried to make himself look like Constantine's successor. Constantine would later become a saint, like his mother. Let us take a moment before we move on to in the history of Rome to look at a few popes. When Constantine patronized the Church of Rome in his Edict of Milan, he commissioned large Christian construction projects, such as the Lateran Basilica and Palace, and the old St. Peter's Basilica. St. Miltades was a bishop of Rome when Constantine issued the Edict of Milan. He served from 311 to 314. He received the palace of the Empress Fausta as the Lateran Palace, which became the papal residence and seat of the Central Church Administration. During his tenure as pontiff, Miltiades saw the schism of the Church of Carthage, and the problem of the Donatists. He received permission from Constantine to intervene. This was the first time an emperor had interfered in church affairs. In 313, the Lateran Council was held. Because of Mil Miltiades' strict rules of evidence and argument, the Donatists grew frustrated and refused to participate. We said to the Pope, led the Pope to decide with the Orthodox Catholics. Despite this, Donatism continued to spread throughout North Africa. I will cover Donatism in a future in a bonus episode on heresies before the Reformation. Miltiades died before the Council of Arles could be convened, and was replaced by Sylvester I. Not much is known of Sylvester's life. He did not attend the First Council of Nicaea in person, but rather sent two legates, and went on to approve the Council's decision. The First Council of Nicaea gave more power to the bishops of, of principal cities such as Rome, calling them Metropolitans. This meant that Sylvester, Pope Sylvester had even more power than his predecessor. The papacy of Sylvester I is so steeped in legend that one account has him slaying a dragon and resurrecting its victims. It was to Sylvester I that Constantine mythically bestowed the donation of Constantine. In this legend, Constantine bestowed Rome and parts of the Western Roman Empire to the Pope. It was used to support the pontiff's claims of political authority, especially in the 13th century. 
Supposedly, Sylvester I cured Constantine of leprosy and baptized him in exchange for the donation. It was first used by Pope Hadrian I in 778 when he tried to get Charlemagne to endow the Roman Catholic Church. Pope Leo IX used it in 1054 against the Patriarch of Constantinople, which ultimately led to the Great Schism of that year, in which the Catholic Pope and the Eastern Orthodox Patriarch excommunicated each other, signaling the official break between the two sects. I will get into that in a more in a future more in a future episode. It was Pope Pius II who, in 1453, wrote that the donation was a forgery. He did so before being elected as Pope, and never published these writings. During the Renaissance, Filippo Maria Visconti, Duke of Milan, proposed an alliance with Cosimo de' Medici against the Pope. He wrote concerning the donation, quote, "It so happens that even if Constantine consigned to Sylvester." Many, to many, so many and such rare gifts, which is doubtful because of privilege can be nowhere be found. He would only have granted them for his lifetime. The empire takes precedence over any lordship. Caesar Baronius, in his Annales Ecclesiastici, published from 1588 to 1607, wrote that the donation was a forgery. From that point on, this became almost universally accepted. The Roman Empire was passed on from Constantine to his three sons, Constantius II, Constantine II, and Constans. Constantius II ruled the Asian provinces and Egypt. In 340, his brothers clashed over the western provinces, leaving Constantine II dead and Constans a sole ruler over the west. He was assassinated by the usurper Magnentius. Constantius II defeated his brother's assassin, becoming the sole Roman emperor in 350. In 355, Constantius II installed the anti-pope Felix in place of Pope Liberius, who he banished for refusing to condemn St. Athanasius, one of the church fathers I will cover in the next podcast. And this, important, this is important because it illustrates the control that the emperor had over the church. This dynamic shift... This dynamic will shift over time with the fall of Rome as the Catholic Church becomes more powerful than the post-Roman monarchs. Constantius found that he could not rule the empire alone, so he elevated his cousin, Constantius Gallus, as rank of Caesar. This Caesar proved to be corrupt and violent, so Constantius II put him to death. In 355, he promoted his last surviving cousin, Gallus' younger half-brother, Julian, to the rank of Caesar. Five years later, Julian made himself Augustus, leading a war between the two cousins. Constantius II grew too ill to fight and died later the next year in 361. He named Julian as his successor. Julian was the emperor for two years, until he was mortally wounded fighting the assassinated Persians in 363. He totally rejected Christianity and is known as the last non-Christian Roman emperor. He led purges of the Roman bureaucracy, seeking to drive Christianity out of the governing classes of the empire. He wanted to restore Hellenistic polytheism as a state religion, restoring pagan temples, and, re- and reversed many of the Constantine's pro-Christian laws. In 362, Julian declared freedom of religion, in which the Roman Empire did not impose any religion on its provinces. This was seen as an act of favor towards the Jews, in order to upset the Christians. Because of his preference to, uh, to, to paganism versus Christianity, he would become known as Julian the Apostate. According to legend, when Julian died, he said, You have won, Galilean, supposedly expressing his recognition that, with his death, Christianity would become the empire state religion. 
With the death of Julian, the Constantinian dynasty fell. The purple was taken up by Jovian, one of Julian's generals. His short reign of eight months saw peace with Persia and the reestablishment of Christianity as a state church. His reign was far from perfect, however, as he severely persecuted those who still worshipped ancestral gods, and he burned down the Library of Antioch in 363. Unlike his predecessors, he favored Athanasius and reinstated him to the archiepiscopal throne. He was succeeded by Valentinian, or Valentinian the Great. Valentinian made his brother Valens his co-emperor, giving him rule of the eastern provinces while he ruled the rest. Ruled the rest. He and his general Theodosius put down revolts in Africa and Britain and the latter revolt being the great conspiracy by the Picts, Scots, and Saxons. Valentinian was a successful emperor, the last to campaign across, campaign across the Rhine and Danube rivers. His brother Valens was killed at the Battle of Adri- Adrianople, in which a confederated barbarian army defeated the Roman legions on, 9, on August, August 9, 378. This was the beginning of the end for the Western Roman Empire. The vacancy in the Eastern Roman Empire was filled by Theodosius I, son of Valentinian's general. Valentinian, meanwhile, died in 375 and was succeeded by his sons, Gratian and Valentinian II. They ruled together as Christian emperors until Gratian died in 383. Valentinian continued alone as emperor until he died in 392. In that year, Theodosius I unified the empire for one last time. He issued decrees that officially made the Nicene Christianity the official state religion for the Roman Empire. A contemporary of Theodosius I was Pope Damasus I, who served as pontiff from 366 to his death in 384. He oversaw the Council of of Rome of 382, which established the canon or official list of sacred scripture. He supported Jerome's writing of the Vulgate Bible in 382. Damasus I wasn't a big fan of St. Basil of Caesarea, who to him represented the Eastern Church. He refused to help him against the seemingly victorious Arian threat. Peter II, Patriarch of Alexandria and successor of Athanasius, sought refuge in Rome from the Arians. Damasus received him and supported him against his enemies, thus reconciling the Catholic Church and the Church of Antioch. Damasus I encouraged the veneration of Christian martyrs, setting up grave sites and memorials. Ironically, when he died after his 18-year reign, he was buried in a basilica that is now lost to history. After Damasus died, Pope Syracus was elected. He was known as a very active pope in response to a letter from Himerius, Bishop of Tarragona. He issued decisions on 15 different points, on matters regarding baptism, penance, church discipline, and the celibacy of clergy. His are the oldest completely preserved decretals, which strengthened the idea of papal primacy. Although sources say that Pope Syracuse was the first bishop of Rome to style himself Pope, other authorities say that the title Pope was torn was from the early 3rd century, an honorific designation used for any bishop in the West. In the East, it was used only for the Bishop of Alexandria. Pope Marcellinius, who died in 304, is the first bishop of Rome shown in sources to have had the title Pope used of him. In the 6th century, the imperial chancery of Constantinople normally reserved this designation for the Bishop of Rome. From the early 6th century, it began to be confined to the West, to the Bishop of Rome, a practice that was firmly in place by the 11th century. 
when Pope Gregory VII declared it, uh, declared it reserved for the Bishop of Rome. Some sources say that Syracius was the first pope to bear the title Pontifus Maximus. Previously, the title was held by the Roman Emperor himself. Theodosius I, in 393, issued a law which prohibited public non-Christian religious customs, especially those of the Manichaeans. He likely disbanded the ancient Olympic Games in that year as well. He died in 395 and was buried in Constantinople. He was praised by Ambrose for his suppression of paganism. Unfortunately, his army dissolved upon his death and the Goths began to raid as far as Constantinople. Arcadius, an 18-year-old, inherited the Western Empire, and Honorius, a 10-year-old, received the West. Twenty years prior to the death of Theodosius, a horrifying force was made known to the Romans. Leading up to the Battle of Adrianople, there was a huge influx of Gothic refugees, seeking protection within the borders of the Roman Empire. Something terrifying had driven them from their homes in the Pontic Steppes, something that would become known to the Romans around the time of their great defeat at the hands of these fleeing Goths. This force, which had displaced so many people, was the Huns. The Huns' invasion across Volga into the Alan lands was possibly caused by an El Nino mega drought in Central Asia. Either way, for those who came into contact with these so-called so barbarians, it seemed like a scourge from the gods. By 395, the Huns had arrived in the Roman Empire. They attacked Thrace, overran Armenia, pillaged Cappadocia, and threatened Antioch and Syria. Theodosius and his troops remained focused on the west, leaving the west eastern empire vulnerable to Hunnic attacks. Finally, in 398, the eunuch Eutropius gathered an army of Romans and Goths and opposed the Huns. Whether or not Eutropius had an effect on the Huns, it is not certain. What we do know is that the Huns left the Eastern Roman Empire to invade the Sassanid Persia. They were almost successful in sacking the Persian capital, but were badly defeated and retreated into the Caucasus Mountains. But the Huns were far from finished. They continued to threaten the, the quote-unquote barbarian tribes of Europe, causing the Vandals, Swaves, and Alans to cross the Rhine into Gaul in 406. In 408, the Huns returned with wreak havoc on the Eastern Roman Empire. Meanwhile, both Alaric of the Visigoths and Honorius of the Western Roman Empire began to employ Hunnic mercenaries in their armies, allowing potential enemies to enter freely into their ranks. If anything, they were creating armies that were no longer loyal to their cause. In the Roman Empire, especially the western portion, the emperors became more corrupt and less effective. Honorius, the underage emperor, was placed in the care of a man named Stilicho, Stilicho, nicknamed the last of the Romans, tried to reunify the empire as, as his regency was filled with revolts and invasions by Germanic tribes. Stilicho came against the Visigoth king Alaric when the latter, latter invaded Macedonia. Stilicho came out victorious but allowed the Visigoth king to escape. Alaric went on to invade Italy in 402. Stilicho defeated Alaric twice in Italy before a truce was made. Alaric went to Illyricum. Two years after, in 405, there was another major invasion of Italy by Ragadasius, who led a combined army of Alans, Swaves, and Vandals. Stilicho used mercenaries to defeat Ragadasius before turning east to threaten, and to threaten to declare war on the Eastern Roman Empire if they didn't hand over the eastern half of Illyricum, or part of the Balkans. Stilicho planned on using Alaric to make his move against the Eastern Romans. 
He didn't get the chance, as he had to turn around and try to prevent Britannia and Gaul from completely falling in, into the hands of the Germanic tribes. A lack of Roman support in these areas led to a rebellion in Britain under Constantine III, who declared himself Western Roman Emperor in opposition to the young Honorius. Stilicho's failure to deal with Constantine and rumors of his ambitions led to a mutiny among his own troops. He would be executed in 408, leaving the incompetent Honorius to face another invasion by the Visigoths under Alaric. Honorius employed the strategy of waiting and seeing what would happen. The citizens of Rome starved under the Visigothic siege, and were, there were reports of cannibalism in the city. In August of 410, Rome fell to the Visigoths, the first barbarian capture of the city in almost 800 years. This came as a shock to the Roman system, and the world seemed to be ending. In response to the fall of Rome, Augustine, Augustine wrote his Mag magnum opus, The City of God. The historian Procopius writes a story, records a story where, on hearing the news that Rome had perished, Honorius was initially shocked, thinking that the news was in reference to a favorite chicken he had named Rome. When the tale is, while the tale is discounted as false by, the, by more recent historians like Edward Gibbon, it is useful in understanding Roman public opinion towards Honorius. In the same year, the Romans abandoned Britain to the barbarians. Honorius was the one to issue the withdrawal. Yet Honorius would rule for 13 years after the sack of Rome. When he did die, large swathes of Goth, of Gaul, Spain, and Britain were lost to the empire. His successor, Valentinian III, was elected by the current Eastern Emperor, Theodosius II. It was during Valentinian's reign that the Huns would re return to Rome, this time under a new and even more terrifying leader named Attila. Attila and his brother Bleda were already had already been leading the Huns for a few years when they exacted tribute from Constantinople and even came close to sacking the city. When Bleda died in 445, Attila established sole control over the Huns. Two years later, he returned to the Eastern Roman Empire to devastate the Balkans and Thrace. Constantinople, already suffering from plague, famine, riots, and earthquakes, was only preserved by a quick rebuilding of the Theodosian walls. In 451, the Huns entered Gaul and laid siege to its cities, including Metz, Paris, and Orléans. He would, in the following year, turn south and cross the Alps into Italy, sacking city after city. Valentinian set a peace envoy that included Pope Leo I to convince Attila to stay his hand against the once eternal city. They reminded Attila that his supplies would not last and that the Eastern Romans were defeating him, defeating the Huns left behind in that part of the empire. Using logic, Pope Leo I and other Roman envoys convinced Attila to turn around and return home. As Attila retreated from Italy, the Eastern Roman Emperor Marcion stopped paying tribute. Attila died in 453 of a hemorrhage while he, while he planned to attack Constantinople. The Huns, as a threat to the Roman Empire, were gone, and their people assimilated into the peoples and armies of Rome and Europe. While in its death rose, the, Roman Western, the Western Roman Empire produced one final strong ruler. Majorian became emperor in 457 when he and his troops deposed the previous one. For three years, he worked tirelessly to restore the Western Roman Empire to the grandeur and size it had before. He put down a vandal attack in Italy and launched a campaign against the Visigothic Kingdom in southern Gaul, defeating its king, Theodoric II. He retook Gaul and sent his troops to retake Hispania from the Suebic Kingdom. 
After that, he, sent his sight, he set his sights on Africa, which had been captured and settled by the Vandals. According to historian Edward Gibbon, Majorian, quote, presents welcome discovery of a great and heroic character, such as sometimes arise in a degenerate age to vindicate the honor of the human species, end quote. Majorian's downfall came when he became unpopular with the senatorial aristocracy during his reforms. Ricimer, a powerful general, deposed and killed the last good Western Roman Empire, emperor. From then on, the Western Romans were ruled by puppet emperors controlled by barbarian overlords. In 475, Romulus Augustulus took the purple when he drove his predecessor out of the Western Roman capital at Ravenna. He was a figurehead for his father, Orestes, who had the real power behind the throne, if there was any. Romulus was ultimately forced to abdicate less than a year after his ascension by Odoacer, a Germanic officer who executed Romulus's father. Romulus was exiled from Ravenna and disappeared from the historical record. The Roman Empire in the West was no more, replaced by an assortment of Germanic and barbarian kingdoms. Despite the decay and terror of the fall of the Roman Empire, Christianity and the Catholic Church not only survived, but thrived, in part through the continuation of the Eastern Roman Empire. Pope Innocent I succeeded his father, Pope Anastasius I, in 401, according to their contemporary Jerome. Innocent spared no expense in expanding the power and authority of the Roman Apostolic See. He intervened in the affairs of the Church throughout the Empire and took a stand against Pelagianism, a heresy of the time. In 405, Innocent saw the closing of the Canon of the Bible with an official list of canonical books published to the whole of the Church. When Alaric sacked Rome, Innocent permitted private pagan practices, according to the historian Zosimus. However, Zosimus also suggests that this was an attempt by pagans to restore the public worship failed due to the lack of public interest, suggesting that Rome had been successfully Christianized in the last century. Innocent died in 417. In 431, the Council of Ephesus was summoned by Theodosius II to settle the dispute between Nestorius, father of Nestorianism, and Cyril of Alexandria, the patriarch of that city. The pope at the time was Celestine, and he sent papal legates to represent him, to not take part in the discussions, but to give judgment on them. Cyril presided over the seven sessions of the council, which ended on July 31st. In the final session, five canons were passed, condemning Nestorius and his followers as heretics. Anyone who did not accept the council's decrees would be de de deposed from clerical office or even excommunicated. The seventh canon of the Council of Ephesus condemned any departure from the Nicene Creed. It was soon decided that the bishops had only had stewardship over their own provinces. So, for example, the Bishop of Antioch could not interfere in the affairs of the Church in Cyprus. And the ultimate result of the Council of Ephesus was a rift between the Orthodox Catholics and the Nestorians in Persia and the East, which would not be resolved until the 1994 Common Christological Declaration between the Catholic Church and the Assyrian Church of the East. Skipping ahead, we have Leo I begin his papacy in 440. Pope Benedict XVI said that Leo's papacy, quote, was undoubtedly one of the most important in the church's history, end quote. He was the first pope to be called the Great, 
and is a doctor of the church. It is he who confronted Attila the Hun in 452. Leo was a significant contributor to the centralization of a spiritual authority within the church and in reaffirming papal authority. The Bishop of Rome had gradually become viewed as the chief patriarch in the Western Church. Leo would push that, uh, that authority into a new realm. He asserted his primacy over Hilary of Arles, who claimed to have stewardship over the entire church in Gaul. Valentinian III, in a 445 degree, decree, declared that the Bishop of Rome had primacy due to, its merit, due to the merits of Peter, the dignity of the city, and the legislation of the First Council of Nicaea. Leo wrote a tome in which he discussed Christ Christology, saying that Christ had two natures, divine and mortal. In 451, the Council of Chalcedon, an ecumenical council like Ephesus before it, was convoked by Emperor Marcion. The Patriarch of Constantinople, Anatolius, presided. Leo's tome and the doctrines that it announced were brought up as part of the discussion. Some of the canons were as follows. One cannot buy or sell an ordination by punishment of deposition. Monks are subject to bishops. Slaves must obtain permission from their masters to become monks. Clergymen in almshouses or monasteries are subject to bishops. No cleric can be of the, on the clergy list of more than one city. Provinces may not be divided. Monks and nuns may not contract marriage by punishment of excommunication. Clergy and monks may not conspire against the bishop. Monasteries erected by bishops may not be moved. Clergy may, that may not elope. Lay people may not elope. You may not assist in an elopement. All by punishment of expulsion. Bishops may not be deposed without cause. The Bishop of Constantine has the same rights as the Bishop of Rome. Now this last canon, Canon 28 of 30, was passed at the 16th session of the Chalcedon Council. Constantinople was viewed as the new Rome. Leo confirmed all the canons decided by the council, except for this 28th one. He declared that it was null and void because it violated the Council of Nicaea. The See of Constantinople was, of course, elevated to a position second in eminence and power to the Bishop of Rome. A schism re resulted from the Council of Chalcedon. Some churches weren't comfortable with the, wor with the word wording of Leo's tome and the dual nature of Christ, saying that it was too similar to Nestorianism. So the Church of Alexandria broke off and became the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria. Other churches also broke off. The so-called monophysitism in the East was led by these Copts of, Al of Egypt. Let us now shift our focus from Rome to Constantinople. We will briefly return to the Eternal City near the end of today's episode to examine its schism with the city of Constantine. Zeno was the Byzantine Emperor, or Emperor of the Romans at Constantinople, when the city was taken by Odoacer in 476. Zeno's reign started off rocky with a couple major revolts, one of which, by Basiliscus, caused him and his wife to flee the capital for a time. Later, after he returned to power, Zeno teamed up with the enemy of his enemy, Theodoric the Great, against Theodoric Strabo. Zeno then tried to play the two Theodorics off each other, but failed as they joined for forces. He tried to divide them by bribing Theodoric the Great. It didn't work. Zeno sent the Bulgars to defeat Strabo, but Strabo defeated the Bulgars. Strabo was unable to celebrate his victory, as he had to return to Greece to deal with his own unruly men. He died en route. Zeno, meanwhile, joined forces with Theodoric the Great once more, and even made him consul. 
the first time a barbarian reached such a distinction in the Roman Empire. Theodoric and Zeno defeated many enemies, and Zeno sent his, his new friend to Italy to fight Odoacer with the full force of the Ostrogoths. That was the end of the Germanic presence in the east. Zeno went on to persecute the Samaritans, leading to their revolt, which was put down by Zeno. He died in 491 of dysentery after 17 years of ruling Constantinople. Zeno chose Anastasius to succeed him. Anastasius I, Dicorius, made several improvements to the Byzantine government, economy, and bureaucracy, including leaving a sizable budget surplus and introducing a new form of currency. His successor, Justin I, was chosen when Anastasius prayed to God and determined that the first person to walk into the room would be the next emperor. Justin I was the chief of the, his guards. In 518, Justin, an elderly, illiterate man from a peasant family, began a new dynasty, the Justinian dynasty. He ruled for nine years until his nephew, Justinian I, ascended to the throne in 527 at the age of 45. Justinian, or Justinian the Great, is known as a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church. He sought to revive the deceased Roman Empire, matching its greatness. His general, Belisarius, was sent to Africa to conquer the Vandal Kingdom there. He went, then went across the Mediterranean to restore Dalmatia, Sicily, Italy, and Rome to the Byzantine Empire. Justinian also subdued the Tizani, a Black Sea people that had never been under Roman rule before. Justinian also did many other things, like rewrite Roman law, which is still the basis of civil law in, in many modern European nations, though its introduction to, through its introduction to Italy. Included in his Codex Justinianus were some pretty progressive laws by our standards. Justinian passed laws to protect prostitutes from exploitation and women from being forced into prostitution. Rapists were treat, treated severely. Women charged with major crimes were to be guarded by other women to prevent sexual abuse. If a woman was widowed, her dowry would be returned, and a husband could not take on a major debt without his wife giving her consent twice. Byzantine culture and art blossomed. Many new and glamorous buildings were erected, including the Hagia Sophia. All of the splendor lasted until the four, 540s, when there was an outbreak of bubonic plague. Justinian's reign wasn't perfect. In 532, the Nika revolts almost drove him out of the city, but he was encouraged by his wife Theodora to stay. The Nika revolts were caused by competing chariot race, racing ba fan bases, which were like street gangs combined with political parties that had theological differences. The riots started out as, over the issue of two convicted murderers who were chariot racers for the Blues and the Greens, respectively. The riots grew more and more violent and turned against the emperor. Much of Constantinople was destroyed by the fires lit by the rioters. To end the revolts, Justinian and Belisarius slaughtered the rebels in the Hippodrome. 30,000 rioters were killed. Justinian rebuilt the city, including his, his beloved Hagia Sophia. In the end, Justinian reconquered much of the Eastern Roman Empire, including the Balkans, Greece, Anatolia, the Levant, Egypt, and North Africa southern Spain, Italy, Sicily, and Italy. Some said that this expansion dangerously stretched the Byzantine resources, and many said that, the, that Europe had changed by the 6th century, that huge Mediterranean empires were a thing of the past. 
Justinian reversed the monophysite policies of Zeno and Anastasius, and eased the tensions between the bishops of Rome and Constantinople. He did, however, drift towards monophysitism during the end of his life, possibly due to the influence of Theodora. He convoked the Ecumenical Second Council of Constantinople, which consisted of mostly Eastern bishops, with nine from Illyricum, seven from Africa, and none from Italy. The council opposed Nestorianism and the teaching that the Virgin Mary was the mother of God, instead of the mother of Christ. Justinian hoped to bring the Chalcedonians and Monophysites back together, in a spirit of reconciliation. This council only caused further schisms and heresies in the church. Missionary work continued under Justinian. In Asia Minor alone, John of Ephesus reportedly converted 70,000 pagans. The Heruli, the Huns living near the Don River, the Abbasgi, and the Tizani all accepted Christianity. Jews were persecuted under Justinian. This would become a pattern in Europe. Samaritans and Manichaeans also suffered persecutions under the emperor. It seemed to the Romans that in Constantinople that God forsook them. There was a great famine in the 530s. There were three volcanic eruptions in Papua New Guinea, El Salvador, and Krakatoa, which affected Europe and the Byzantines. There was also a meteor shower. It is a mystery as to if and how these natural disasters occurred in unison. Scientists are still baffled. Scientists are still baffled. In 542, the plague of Justinian broke out. Second only to that of the 14th century, this bubonic outbreak killed tens of millions throughout the world. Justinian himself barely survived the outbreak. In 551, there was a massive earthquake that could be felt from Antioch to Alexandria. Theodora died, possibly of cancer, in 548. Justinian would outlive her for 20 years before dying childless in 565. His nephew, Justin II, succeeded him. With the death of Justinian, the Byzantine Dark Ages were ushered in, not to be lifted until 717. Justin II reigned until 574 when he retired. His reign saw war with the Sassanid Empire and the loss of much of Italy. He abdicated in favor of his general and adopted son, Tiberius II Constantine, who ruled from 582, who ruled until 582. Tiberius was successful against the Persians and tried to restore Justinian's western empire. His son-in-law, Maurice, inherited the Byzantine Empire. Maurice defeated the Persians so that the Romans no longer had to pay thousands of pounds of gold annually for peace. He fought the Avars in the Balkans, pushing them back across the Danube by 599. Because of financial difficulties and constant warfare, the dissatisfied general Phocas usurped the throne in 602. A 26-year-long war broke out between the Byzantines and the Sassanid Persians, which would leave both parties weak for the approach of a third party, which we'll get into next in this episode. Phocas ruled for eight years until Heraclius took Constantinople in 610. Heraclius introduced Greek as the official language of the Byzantines. He also saw the end of the 26-year-long war with Persia, and he built up the Byzantine defenses and military. He saw the arrival of a new enemy, which would prove not only to threaten the Byzantines and Persians, but later the European nations. This was, this was the seemingly unstoppable force of the Muslim Arabs. Islam has its origins in the Prophet Muhammad, born in 570. He had a vision in in 610 of the archangel Gabriel, who called him to be a prophet. He passed on Gabriel's words 
to his friends, who wrote them down. These were writings and revelations became compiled into the Quran. Muhammad preached in Mecca and the Arabian Peninsula. Due to persecution, he fled to Abyssinia to the empire of Aksum. They, they, they then emigrated to Medina in 622. In Medina, the Muslims, or followers of Muhammad and his new religion of Islam, established their, pro their prophets, political and religious authority. A commune was established there, and the Muslims, Christians, Jews, and pagans lived in harmony. The people of Mecca attacked Medina in 624, but were driven back. The Arab tribes in the rest of the peninsula banded together to annihilate Medina and the new Islamic religion. After an intense battle, a treaty was written up in 628. Muhammad died in 632, leading to a succession crisis. Abu Bakr was made the first caliph. The Quran was compiled into a single volume and was carried with the Muslims in their conquests. Abu Bakr died after two years as caliph, but his successor, Umar, carried on the caliphate. First, the whole Arabian Peninsula came under control of the caliphate. Umar was assassinated by the Persians in 644, but Uthman was elected as his successor. Ali became caliph when Uthman was killed in 656. In 661, Ali was also killed, and Hassan ibn Ali signed a peace treaty with Muawiyah, beginning the Umayyad dynasty. But a schism occurred during this time. The, the majority believed that the first four caliphs were illegitimate. They became known as the Sunnis. The minority, known as the Shia, believed that only Ali and some of his descendants should rule. The Umayyad Caliphate, at its greatest extent, stretched from modern-day Pakistan to the Middle East, through the Middle East and North Africa to Al-Andalus, or Muslim Spain. In the late 7th and early 8th centuries, the Arabs laid siege to Constantinople. They failed due to the impenetrable Theodosian walls and the use of Greek fire on Arab ships. The Byzantines were also aided by the second ruler of Bulgaria, Khan Tervel, called the Savior of Europe. In 750, the Umayyad Caliphate was replaced by the Abbasid Caliphate, a smaller empire from Algeria to Pakistan. Its capital, Baghdad, became a center for great learning and knowledge, advanced in the fields of science, culture, philosophy, and invention. This period became known as, became known as the Golden Age of Islam. It lasted until 1258, when the Mongols under Hugalu Khan sacked Baghdad. The capital was then moved to Cairo until the Ottoman conquest of Egypt in 1517. Before I end today's long episode, I will revisit Rome to bring it into the Middle Ages. But first, in, in Constantinople, Leo III established the Isaurian dynasty, bringing the Byzantine Empire out of the Dark Ages and a 20-year-long period of anarchy. He came to power in 717. Whether or not icons should be used in worship was the debated issue of the day. Icons are religious works of art, usually paintings, that depict different people or aspects of Christianity, most commonly Christ, Mary, saints, or angels. According to the Eastern Orthodox tradition, icons were in use since the beginning of Christianity. There is a legend that Pilate used the first, first icon. Eusebius wrote that King Abgar of Edessa wrote to Christ, asking him to come heal him. Another later account of Abgar's request involved Christ sending a king, sending the king a divinely created icon. Irenaeus wrote scornfully of the practice of icons in worship. Quote, they also possess images, some of them painted and others formed from different kinds of material, 
while they maintain that the likeness of Christ was made by Pilate at the time when Jesus lived among them. They crown these images and set them up, along with the images of the philosophers of the world, that is to say, with the images of Pythagoras and Plato and Aristotle and the rest. They also have other modes of honoring these images, after the same manner of the Gentiles, pagans, end quote. This criticism shows us that in some form, among, Christian, among some Christians, icons were in use. Over time, icons became pretty popular, but not everyone was in favor of the use of icons. Iconoclasm refers to the Greek word for image struggle, or war on icons. There were two periods of Byzantine iconoclasm. We will discuss the first, from 726 to 787. A volcanic eruption in the Aegean caused the great loss of life with tsunamis striking parts of the Byzantine Empire. Emperor Leo III interpreted this as God's punishment for the for the use of icons. At some point, by three by seven thirty, Leo III removed a prominent icon of Christ from the palace gates, replacing it with a cross. In three, in seven thirty, he issued an edict that forbade the veneration of icons. Due to this edict, the Patriarch of Constantinople resigned or was deposed because he would not give up his icons. Pope Gregory II also had conflicts, already had conflicts with Leo III, refusing to pay increased taxes. In a way, the Pope was protected from Roman retaliation as the Lombards, a Germanic people who established a kingdom in Italy, kept the imperial forces busy at Ravenna. Gregory II, in defiance of the Byzantine Emperor, encouraged civil disobedience. When Leo III initiated the war on icons, Gregory summoned a synod to condemn iconoclasm. According to the Greek sources, Gregory went, as, went so far as to excommunicate Leo. No Western source confirms this. However, Leo confiscated two large papal estates and transferred them to the Patriarch of Constantinople. Gregory did write the following to the emperor, quote, You say we worship stones and walls and boards, but it is not so, O emperor. But they serve us for remembrance and encouragement, lifting our slow spirits upwards by those whose names the pictures bear and whose representations they are. And we worship them not as God, as you maintain, God forbid. Even the little children mock at you. Go into one of their schools, say that you are the enemy of images, and straightway they will throw their little tablets at your head. And what you, you have failed to learn from the wise, you may pick up from the foolish. In virtue of the power which has come down to us from St. Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, we will inflict a punishment upon you, but since you have invoked one on yourself, have that, you and the counselors you have chosen, though you have so excellent a high priest, our brother Germanus, whom you have, whom you ought to have taken your, into your counsels as father and teacher. The dogmas of the church are not a matter for the emperor, but for the bishops." End quote. Though by 741 both Gregory and Leo had died, the issue of iconoclasm continued to rage in Constantinople. The Church of Rome had a bigger problem than iconoclasm, though. The Lombards switched allegiance from the Pope to the Emperor, meaning that they needed a new defender. That's when the Pope asked for help from the Frankish Empire under the command of Charles Martel. In the next episode, we will see what happens to the Church of Rome, and we will explore the Christianization of Europe. We finish up the early Middle Ages next time on the Mormon History Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, even suggestions for improvement, or if you want to hear about something on the show, 
You can send me a message on Facebook or through my email, mhistorypod at gmail.com. We also have a blog. It's at www.mhistorypod.com. I admit there's not much to see yet, but I'm working on it. Thanks again, and y'all have a great week. This has been the Mormon History Podcast.